Good day. My name is Andrew Milligan, and on behalf of the Society of Professional Economists, I'm delighted to welcome you to the latest in a series of video interviews which we're having with senior economists from all around the world, discussing, a, as you know, a wide variety of issues. Uh, now, much of the time, of course, economists are analysing cyclical issues, uh, such as the state of the economy, uh, um, inflation, perhaps something which will cover a cycle or two, uh, such as the state of the labour market or how to regulate one or two sectors. Uh, we do face much larger threats, of course, to the global e economy, the planet, uh, namely climate change. Um, organisations such as the IPCC are giving stark warnings about the need to act quickly and decisively on, on a range of matters. And for that reason, therefore, I'm delighted to welcome an economist who has spent much time in recent years uh, thinking about environmental matters, namely Mark Cliff. Mark, welcome. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Andrew. It's great to be with you. Well, let me tell you a little about Mark's background. Um, he's currently a senior advisor to KPMG on environmental, social, corporate governance and climate risk matters. Uh, now, as many of you will know, he's had a successful career leading teams of economists at several major banks, such as HSBC. Uh, in particular, he spent about 20 years as chief economist and global head of research at the ING Group, uh, where he created and led the New Horizons Hub which was tasked with analysing disruptive climate changes, digital finance and, and, and such like matters. And Mark is also a visiting professor at the London Institute of Banking and Finance uh, and a regular speaker at conferences and author of many articles more recently on climate change matters and such like. So, Mark, thank you very much for joining us today. Um, Shall we start with just a, a general scene setting question, I suppose? I, I mean, you spent most of your career, of course, as a bank economist. Um, can you tell us what led you to focus on sustainability issues and that aspect of green economics, so to speak? Yeah, well, I've, I've always been uh, rather heterodox and multidisciplinary in my approach to, to economics. So my interest in sustainability has always been rooted in market failures that lead to social and environmental problems. Uh, now, of course, markets have been critical to human progress, but it's increasingly obvious that market-led growth has been accompanied by growing problems for people and the planet. But you may wonder, of course, why this is relevant to a, a bank economist. After all, bank economists are rather preoccupied with macroeconomic and financial market forecasting. But it doesn't take long to realize how bad we are at it. You become acutely conscious of the limitations of conventional macroeconomics. I mean, the, I mean, the first problem is the presumption that the economy is self-correcting and is and that and that's so often wrong. Uh, the recovery that we saw after the global financial crisis and the one that we're sort of seeing now after the pandemic has relied largely on massive unconventional policy responses that go way beyond mainstream general equilibrium thinking, if you will. And the second problem is that flow-based macro models overlook how much balance sheets matter. And over the last few decades, we've seen a tremendous financialization of the global economy, which rather leaves it vulnerable to corrections in asset prices that can make debt unserviceable. So macroeconomic models struggle with wealth effects, and indeed they're completely unable to predict asset prices. The simple fact is that asset prices are hard to forecast because they're themselves forecast. Um, and so 
We've also recognized that financial balance sheets are not the only type that matter. Increasingly, we're becoming conscious of the fact that natural and human capital uh, are important for sustainable growth and well-being. And then the third big problem is distribution matters, whether it's of income, wealth, or other resources. The behavior of one consumer or company isn't always a reliable guide to the behavior of them all. So rich and poor people behave differently. So to me, economists all need to be concerned with sustainability. Well, I, I, I particularly like certain of the points you made there. I, I fully agree with your point about externalities. I mean, that's why banks often make large losses is they haven't fully understood yeah, exactly, some of the exactly, yeah, yeah. And, I, and I really liked your point about human and natural capital. Um, I've, I've uh, talked on some of these video sessions before about Professor Parthadis Gupta's report on biodiversity, where he really brings home uh, the importance yeah. of us understanding different balance sheets uh, around. So you, you've yeah. very well described your journey, so to speak, uh, towards sustainability issues. Uh, you've worked with several multinational companies. Um, mm. How did you find their analysis of environmental issues evolved over time? Um, was there a lot of change taking place in organizations? Was it more at the top or the middle or the bottom? Uh, so what was the progress of some of the, the, the companies you worked with, um, speaking generally, of course? Yeah, I mean, I, I, th I think in, traditionally, companies have taken a rather reactive approach to environmental issues. They've tended to address them in response to external pressure from, say, governments or other stakeholders. In other words, uh, they treat them as what we economists call externalities. Um, but I, I think it's fair to say that there's been a, a shift in recent years. There's growing pressure on companies to take a more proactive approach to avoid or mitigate environmental harms. And sustainability is no longer the preserve of the marketing department as it was a few years ago. There's growing awareness in particular of the impact of climate change and pervasive environmental damage. And this has pushed it up the agenda, not just for policymakers, but also for business. You know, climate change is now seen as a material financial risk, making it a regulatory and therefore a board level or C-suite issue. And more broadly, consumers and wider society are now looking for business to step up. And I think we, we are in a very important phase actually this year with the beginnings of mandatory disclosure uh, of climate risks, which will make it increasingly important that companies respond because they will be held to account if they fail to play their part in reaching the goal of net zero greenhouse gas emissions. So there are tremendous reputational market risks if you get accused of greenwashing. And these commitments um, now need to be operationalized. This involves measurement and monitoring, but it also involves taking action. And if you're going to take action, you need a plan. And if you have a plan, you need to be a forecaster. But what I find really weird is that in many companies, economists are nowhere to be seen in these kind of discussions. It's left to the risk department or to the sustainability department, and they end up outsourcing this activity. So I think it's important that professional economists do get much more engaged in this and, and you know, move away from the day, day job of short-term forecasting. Thank you for those thoughts, Mark. Uh, when some people look at the impact of climate change on the world economy, they become rather downbeat. And I saw a LinkedIn post from you recently where you said, and, and here's a quote uh, for you to, to, to comment on, 
What's particularly disturbing is how the cost of net zero is being used by some politicians to politicize these issues and argue against action. With increasing returns to scale on green technologies, there are plausible scenarios that suggest that net zero could be net positive for growth. So can you elaborate on that quote and some of your thoughts as an economist about some of these issues uh, moving away from business towards the wider economy? Yeah, well, I think as many people have uh, pointed out, transitioning to a green economy is a whole economy transformation, and it's going to take decades. And so it's certainly going to involve costs. Um, there will certainly be a cost in the form of lost jobs in the fossil fuel economy. And there will be an enormous cost in replacing fossil fuel uh, related infrastructure and products with renewables. And it's hardly surprising that the people and companies that are set to lose out are, are, are fighting back. And it doesn't help uh, over the last uh, couple of years that we've seen such a surge in energy prices. And this has stemmed from the collision of the recovery from the pandemic with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And populist politicians have jumped on this to say, now is not the time to shift to net zero. But what's missing from that narrative is a recognition of the huge opportunity there is in accelerating the race to net zero. The very language of cost deflects attention from the fact that investing, and I stress investing in decarbonisation, is not consumption, it's investment. And crucially, it's an investment not just with a positive return, but with a return that is potentially very high, not just in financial terms, but also social terms. You know, we're going to see many jobs created. It's going to improve the health of, of the world. And contrary to many official projections, the transition to net zero, in my view, is likely to give a net boost to growth. And addressing this would really make it far easier to sell the prospect of net zero to the public. Well, it, clearly some very large sums though are going to be needed to finance this energy transition which you're talking about. Um, and, and so there is the question of how this money is going to be raised. You know, is it the taxpayer? Is it is it going to be uh, the banking system, insurance companies and such like? Um, I noticed that in a recent lecture, you talked about some of the dangers that bank supervisors and regulators are going to be rather too complacent when making scenarios or stress tests, uh, which might risk fostering, fostering complacency. So how do you see these sums being raised to finance the, the transition, not just, of course, energy, but biodiversity issues as well? And how do you see the regulator, um, what sort of um, uh, positive or, or negative aspects of, of their role do you, do you see in this? Well, I, I think there's no doubt that the central banks and the supervisors and the regulators recognise the urgency of climate change. You hear this in just about every speech they make these days. And that's why they're conducting stress tests on the financial risk posed uh, to banks and financial institutions. But the problem that I see is that the scenarios that they've been providing for this purpose uh, do risk fostering complacency. They suggest that climate risk will make very little to growth, uh, difference to growth or to, to financial losses, even on a 30-year horizon. And, and to give you just um, one example, last year the ECB published um, their projections, which suggested that the cumulative total difference in GDP between their business as usual hot, so-called hothouse scenario and an orderly policy net zero scenario 
over 30 years is barely 3%. Now, if you think about that for a second, that's almost laughable when you consider the volatility that we've seen in economic activity just over the last couple of years. And this is in the context of escalating physical risk and the dramatic transformation in the economy that decarbonisation will entail. And I think the key problem here is that the, the official uh, scenarios do rely on the use of so-called general equilibrium models that massively underplay the benefits of greening the economy, which is a huge positive productivity shock in my view. Instead, they assume that green investment is going to lead to damaging interest rate rises. And they assume that the rapid fall in renewables that we've seen over the last decade is going to come to some kind of mysterious end. And I've made a number of suggestions about how to address this problem. And I think the principal one is actually to start focusing on shorter term horizons. Because we, we've got the message that if we don't address this, we face an existential threat. The real question is, what do we do about it? And we need to get moving quickly over the next few years. So I think the scenarios need to be looking at horizons of, say, five years or so. And they do need to incorporate a fuller range of the risks and opportunities uh, that uh, we're faced with uh, around climate change. The key point here is that nonlinear dynamics will accelerate change. You know, the earth systems and the economic and financial, political and social systems are interdependent and they're powerful feedbacks. To give you just one good example of this, supportive policies have really helped to accelerate the fall in the cost of renewables in a way that's now triggering tipping points in business and consumer demand. Price parity is a crucial threshold as we've seen in so many technologies. And thankfully, we, we've, 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 we're just starting to cross those points. Well, I, I, I do have sympathy with your, your point about shorter term forecasts. I and mean, if we simply go back to COP26 and such like last year, it was making many suggestions about proposals about how much we need to do by 2030, which of course yeah. is only eight years away. Um, yeah. So, uh, and, and, you know, very much making the point that if we don't uh, really do a, a lot of action in this decade, then then a lot of, of, of issues are going to become very serious in the 2030s and 2040s. Exactly. Now, we, we've talked a little, therefore, about the, the economics uh, and the financial aspects uh, of, of uh, biodiversity and, and climate change. Um, I saw a recent Project Syndicate article from you about the social aspects of sustainability, because, of course, this is a societal issue as, as well. Um, climate activists are understandably be pushing for green policies, of course, that's that's what uh, they, they should do. Um, but governments, and I think perfectly understandably, uh, are very focused on the immediate issues, um, the public health crisis, the cost of living crisis, or, or the Ukraine-Russian war. Um, do you think there's ways that we can reconcile some of these uh, quite almost divergent views, timescales and such like. Um, the fiscal side I'm particularly thinking about, of course, because uh, some of the issues here uh, would, would uh, be, be of considerable importance in, in solving some of these problems. That, that's absolutely right, Andrew. Uh, of course, it's important to recognise that human flourishing is at the heart of sustainability. It's no use saving the planet at the expense of people. Ultimately, it is about human um, well-being. And for growth to be sustainable, it has to be equitable. So we immediately come to the distributional issues, which macroeconomics has for too long ignored. 
and it's not something that can be left entirely to market forces. So fiscal policy has a critical role to play in supporting the poor in general and the losers from the green transition in particular. And I've argued that the funding for such support should really come from a progressive and a dramatic shift towards environmental taxation, which would take a lot of the pressure off labor taxes, particularly at the bottom end of the income scale. And I think a really good example of this and a very interesting example is, is in the US where Republicans have actually given their support to the idea of so-called carbon dividends. I mean, you could generalize this to green dividends or green credits, if you will. And the idea here is to use the proceeds from carbon taxes to fund lump sum payments that would disproportionately benefit the poor. Of course, it's not a great time to be thinking of increasing taxes on, on energy, given that energy prices are so high right now. But the governments could kickstart this process by paying the carbon dividends or green credits now and then look to fund them later with future revenues from carbon taxes or environmental taxes in general. And these could be used to put a floor under consumer energy prices once wholesale prices prices start to fall back from the current crisis levels. Well, there's another aspect of um, the society and the societal aspects of, of, of course, climate change and biodiversity, which is um, the development of what's often called the circular economy. Um, uh, how, how do you see governments or campaigners actually trying to bring that aspect about, uh, out, about as well? Well, I think you know, taking an economist perspective on this, because actually one of the, again, the strange aspects of the discussions about the circular economy is how few economists are actually involved in the discussions. It's often left to uh, sustainability experts. But um, I think the, 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 the fundamental problem here is simply that virgin materials have been far too cheap for far too long. And obviously, recently things have changed a bit, but it, essentially it just, been the way to go. If you're a commercial organization, uh, the economics of it are, are still compelling and that it's really hard to move to um, a circular economy uh, business model at a time when consumers still seem to be rather reluctant to pay up for the privilege. Um, so I, I think we could hope that technology will begin to shift us in this direction, but in the end, public policy is absolutely crucial. We are making some progress. We've seen over the last few years, um, I think, steps forward in terms of um, addressing waste problems and shifting towards recycling. But, you know, we've, we've taken the easy way out in the West by exporting the problem to China and other emerging markets. Um, we've got rid of our dirty industries uh, to, to a very large extent. So I, I think uh, public policy does need to be much more proactive. And that's why I'm a, a great uh, advocate of increasing taxes on stuff as opposed to services. Which, of course, chimes very much with uh, the points you made right at the start about how you started this this um, 
shift towards thinking more about sustainability, which was externalities and, and the costs for the, for the business. That's right. Uh, That's I think right. I'm right in saying that Earth Overshoots Day, which is when uh, we as, as uh, the world economy actually use up uh, the um, goods and services which planet Earth uh, generates in the course of the year. I think Earth, Earth, Earth Overshoot Day is about the end of July. Uh, so after that, we are very much using too much of the the virgin material, so to speak, which which we, which you were talking about, um, uh, we something something we need to address. Now, uh, you you talked a little earlier um, in in answering the question about how businesses uh, are beginning to respond to uh, all of these sustainability issues and how it is becoming more embedded um, at board level and and management level as well. It, clearly, the theme of ESG investment. Um, environmental, social and, and government criteria. It's gained enormous attention in the last couple of years. Um, but uh, you mentioned greenwashing, and I think we, we have to, to, to turn our attention to this. Um, do you think that this is a sustainable trend? What was your thoughts about uh, greenwashing? What, what do you think the prospects are for um, ESG investing and perhaps moving away uh, more towards impact investing as, as opposed to uh, simply uh, some, some of the standard exclusions from the past. So your thoughts about how the investing community and, and the economists role in that as well. Well, it's, it's, it's really interesting. We've had an upsurge of interest in uh, so-called ESG investing, but there's the whole field is surrounded by confusion and hype. Uh, it's not surprising, therefore, that uh, some might worry that we're just in the midst of uh, another investment bubble. You know, it really doesn't help that there are so many competing definitions and measurements across multiple countries as well. And it doesn't help that claims that companies that are highly rated on ESG criteria uh, outperform financially are so contentious. Um, you know, I was taught that correlation is not causation. So the fact that many ESG funds up until recently have outperformed, actually for quite a number of years, may simply be due to the fact that they have had high weights in the technology sector and relatively low weights in oil. Um, that may have just been you know, a, a fortunate combination. They just caught the tech wave, should we say. And even within sectors, it may simply be that profitable companies have more resources to burnish their ESG credentials. So it's possible that we may see an ongoing backlash against ESG. However, looking further ahead, I do have a more positive view about the prospects for ESG. The first reason is that there are strenuous efforts being made by both the public and the private sectors to provide more clarity. Progress is being made on data, on standardization and disclosure, which will increase market transparency, accountability and confidence in, in the phenomenon. The second thing is that public policy support is continuing to grow. I mentioned earlier that we're going to see mandatory reporting of climate risks. This is likely to be followed in a, in a couple of years, perhaps by mandatory reporting of nature-related risks, and then ultimately social risks. So I think what we'll see is that ESG will become so mainstream that it ceases to be a distinct category in the longer term. And of course, the third factor which underpins all of this is that 
societal expectations are growing of corporate behavior. And you, you only have to look at the reaction in the West to Russia's invasion of Ukraine to show how far ESG has moved beyond the sort of minimum standards that are set by the UN Sustainable Development Goals, which provide a lot of inspiration uh, for the ESG movement in the last few years. And, and, and this really brings home the point that uh, ESG is an intrinsically political phenomenon and that the role that business plays in society will continue to come under increasing scrutiny. Well, Mark, thank you very much indeed for all of those thoughts. Clearly, you've been on a journey as an economist, and, and I think very much uh, what you've been saying will encourage many other economists uh, to think more deeply, widely, broadly uh, about how many of these aspects can be incorporated into their day-to-day -day job and, and what they can perhaps do within their organisation uh, to help uh, bring uh, some of these uh, issues to a, a more successful outcome rather than some of yeah. the disruptive scenarios that uh, uh, some of the, uh, the the activists and the scientists are warning us about. So thank you very much indeed for, for taking part um, in, in this uh, interview today. That it's, it's been much appreciated. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Andrew. Well, thank you to everyone for dining in. Uh, I uh, encourage you, of course, to keep looking at the Society of Professional Economists website uh, for details of future events, both in person uh, and in videos such as this. So once again, Mark, many thanks indeed for your uh, most uh, informative comments today. Thank you. Thank you.